Well, good evening. evening. It's a privilege to be with you all. If you don't know me, my name is Mark Evans. If you do know me, my name is still Mark Evans either way. Uh, But I look forward to meeting you if I have not done so already. We've been walking through the covenants, covenants that God made with Adam last week, looking at the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then tonight, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. So our scripture reading for this evening comes from Exodus chapter 19. And my apologies, I'm going to read a little bit longer than is printed in your bulletin. That's my mistake, but hopefully it'll serve us well. So as you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. And these are the words of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready, for the third day do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, You are indeed the God who keeps covenant unto a thousand generations. 
You are the God who has condescended, who has come down to be with us in order to redeem us, even taking upon flesh, incarnate word, your very son, our perfect law keeper, pierced for our transgressions, raised again in newness of life so that we too might be raised up with him. And so we pray this evening that you would speak to us through your word, that we might be rooted in Christ, built up in Christ and established in our faith. And so grant us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. And we ask this in his name and amen. Please be seated. Well, let's start with uh, a question, a rather simple question, straightforward question to contemplate. And that is this. What is salvation? What is it to be saved as we use that parlance so, so often? What is it to be saved? And I say it because, unfortunately, we we might. We might have far too shallow, too narrow of an answer if we respond to that question by saying, well, to be saved is simply to be forgiven of my sins. I, of course, say this in no way to belittle or demean forgiveness, but rather because forgiveness is not the, the totality of what salvation is. Salvation is communion with the living God. Salvation is fully summed up in the living Christ and to be joined and united to Him and thus the full enjoyment of the triune God forever and ever and ever. Perhaps we could think about the shortcoming this way. Imagine how dreadfully amiss it would be if if a husband should forgive a wrongful wife or a wife forgives a harsh husband only to then sleep in separate bedrooms and behave like ships passing in the night. We would cry out, we would protest, yes, you've forgiven one another, but you're not living in the fullness of covenant unity and covenant joy that marriage is. And how much more with our great God and His people. And so the course of the covenant, I'm sure you've seen thus far, is this. God comes and He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And friends, there's perhaps nothing that is more important for us to grasp tonight than the abundant grace that is encapsulated in those words. I will be your God. I will be all that God is to you. I will decisively and graciously draw you into covenant with my very self. And I will consummate this covenant with a maximal blessedness that is so far beyond measure and so far beyond merit because I intend to give you my very self. I will be your God. And what is the only fitting and proper reflex, response from God's people, but faith and repentance, but faith and fealty, but covenantal obedience from the people of God. And so tonight, we're going to Mount Sinai. And from that peak we will look at God's promise to reconcile a people in Christ. And we'll walk through the one covenant, but looking at it from three different angles or three different perspectives, you could say. We'll look at the covenant as a way of covenant of communion. We'll look at the covenant as a covenant of law. And then thirdly, we'll look at the covenant as it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly, the covenant of communion. A covenant of bonding, you could say. So where are we in the story? Well, last week, if you're here, you saw with Abraham, 
God's promise to reward the world in Christ. But it doesn't take very long. As soon as you go from Genesis just to Exodus, you see what looks more like a prison sentence than it does a reward. Because when a mighty Pharaoh is liquidating your little ones, when a mighty Pharaoh is killing your offspring, it tends to put the strain on your faith. And so not only does the promised land land seem like a fairy tale, a distant dream, but they are under the tyranny of Pharaoh as slaves. Indeed, they are multiplying just as God promised, but as their tribe increases, so too does their pain and their sorrow and their agony. And so God's people do what God's people do. They cry out. They cry out to God. God, hear us. And guess what? God hears their cries. He sees their affliction and He remembers what? What does God remember? God remembers the covenant that He made with Abraham and continued on with Isaac and Jacob. And on that basis, on the basis of His own steadfast covenantal love, the covenant that He made and that He enacted, God then moves to redeem Israel. Our covenant-making God is indeed the covenant-keeping God. So I want you to see these are not disconnected stories that we're reading. These are just different chapters of the one and same book. It's one continuous story. As Galatians says, this Sinaitic covenant, it doesn't annul, it doesn't set aside, it's not the reset button of the Abrahamic covenant. This is not a do-over or a replacement. This is the fountain of grace continuing to flow through the story. And communion with God is very much front and center. Look with me now, if you're still in chapter 19, verse 10. Just a few examples to skim the rock here. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them, let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. Be ready for what, we might ask. On the third day, the Lord will come down. Be ready, because God is coming down. Man cannot go up. There is no ladder for man to walk up to. Rather, God must graciously come down to be with His people. Look now at verse 17. Moses brings the people out of the camp to what? To meet God. Just as God met with Adam in the garden, just as God met with Abraham passing between the carcasses, just as God met with Jacob at Bethel, so now God is the one who is condescending, coming down to be with His people. And just to prove it once more, look at verse 20. The Lord God came down on Mount Sinai. Why is God going to have them build a tabernacle, a tent, but for the very purpose that He could dwell with His people? It is a covenant of communion, of fellowship. Parents, you know this to be true. You see it in your own children if you have little ones. Seems like not a day goes by. I know for my kids, they don't, they don't tug on, on my coat, tug on my, my jeans, tug on the blouse, if you will. And they give you those big eyes and say, Daddy, come down here. Mommy, come down here. Just to be with me. And God's own son, Israel, now is doing the same thing. Crying out with no less of a desire. And of course, all of this condescension, this coming down, is just a shadow of the time when God would climatically come down to be with His people in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word become flesh. God tabernacling with with us in Jesus and indeed by Spirit even indwelling His people as a living temple. And friends, that is the very reason you should be overwhelmed, awed, mesmerized when we speak of covenant. 
How is it? How is it that God comes down to be with me, to be my God? As our confession puts it so well, that you and I would have absolutely no blessedness, no sharing in God, no participation with God, unless He voluntarily comes down. And how does He do it? By way of covenant. How does a groom enjoy his bride? Well, he puts on his finest monkey suit and they what? They make a covenant. And so too for the bride of Christ. How does she enjoy her groom? But by way of covenant. It's a covenant of communion and fellowship as rich as it gets. But we're not done there. All we've seen the clear intent of God's covenant with Moses is his intimacy, his fellowship, his presence with his people and this, this sovereign bond. This is just one angle of the prism, if you will. Because a covenant, of course, it is a relationship, and that's sometimes the word used for it, but it's never merely a relationship in the kind of, the kind of shallow way we might use the term nowadays in the modern day. Because a covenant always brings with it conditions, obligations, a keeping of the covenant on man's part to walk in his ways, to trust and to obey. And this is true of all covenants. This is true with Adam. This is true with Abraham, who was to walk blamelessly before the Lord. But perhaps nowhere do the conditions of covenant come to the fore more so than it does with Moses at Mount Sinai. Look again, chapter 19, verse 4. God declares, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you up on eagles', on eagles wings. I brought you to myself. Again, there's the note of fellowship. Now, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's the stipulations. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. So God says to Moses, Moses, my man, my mediator, take these words down. Take these commandments down, spread them out before the people and deliver them to my people. And precisely because they are my people, they are going to image me, the holy God. They are going to be like me as a holy people. And so in a word, if I could just simplify it, God is giving them the law. God's giving them the law. What is distinctive about Moses in this period of history is God is revealing His holy will, His law. It's somewhat like, I remember for us as kids, there would be times when Dad would call this family meeting, say, kids, come on into the dining room, come on into the family room, gather around. Look, we've kind of been dancing around these rules for long enough. I want to take this moment Make it very clear. In fact, I'm going to write them out on the chalkboard. Here they are. You can all see them. These are the expectations moving forward with clarity and fullness. Because, of course, there was already law with Adam. And there was law with Abraham, continuing on. But with Moses, it's like this law is codified and expressed with much more fullness. Now, let's just pause for a minute. As a good litmus test, ask yourself. Truly ask yourself, what is my reaction When I hear the words, the law of God, God's law, do you bristle? Do you stiffen a little bit? Maybe even worse, do images of shackles and handcuffs start to pop into your mind? Do you tend to think, well, if law, then no grace. And if grace, then no law. And certainly my, my freedom, my liberty is about to be infringed upon by this, by this burdensome law. But friends, look again at this text. God does not say, keep this covenant and you will spend your life in utter drudgery. 
Keep this covenant of mine and you'll soon find yourself under a rock pile of guilt and bondage and coercion. No, God says, I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. You will be my treasured possession, the very apple of my eye. Why? Because my law is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And it is reviving to the soul. Behold the promises, the life that is embedded in my law. It's a simple truth. Our view of the law so often reveals our view of the law giver. A low view of the law so often brings with it a low view of God. That perhaps this God of mine really is a killjoy. Perhaps this God of mine has these very creative ways to oppress me, to suppress me. My friends, hear Paul's words. I believe we read them earlier. The law is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And how could it be anything but that? It comes from the God who is holy, who is righteous, who is good. The God who says, keep my covenant unto freedom, not slavery. Look at me once again. Right before the, the Ten Commandments. Jump forward one chapter, chapter 20, verse 2. It's sometimes called just the, the preamble, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, God tells them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I have set you free. I've unshackled you. And on that basis, receive my law and keep my covenant. Walk in the freedom that it is to have no other gods before you. In the freedom that it is to not covet, to not steal, to not commit adultery. Keep these laws not to earn your redemption, but because you already are redeemed by my grace. To paraphrase, I'll put it this way. God does not say, hey, here's the law. Let's see how you do with it. And then maybe, maybe I'll open up the Red Sea. Here's my law. I'm going to keep very tight books on it. And based on that performance, we'll see if you can cross over onto dry land. No, the law comes to an already redeemed post-Red Sea gospel group of people. Kids, you can think of it this way. This comes from one of my favorite seminary professors. He said, you can think of the law like train tracks. The law guides us in and towards communion with God, fellowship with God. And what powers that train but love? Love is like the, the engine that gets the train moving. Law and love are a happy couple, a happy pair. If you have love without the train tracks, then the train just derails. If you have love but no law, the train is just at a standstill. The law is love-shaped and love is law-shaped. This is why no less a saint than John Calvin said that the law was to hold their minds in readiness, in attentiveness, until the coming of Jesus Christ. And so notice... The ready people who respond as one group, chapter 19, they say with one voice, verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And as it were, as you keep reading along in Exodus, you'll find, and we saw this last week with Abraham, this is a covenant that is confirmed, ratified in blood. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And we can ask again now, why blood? Why this smattering of blood? What is God revealing to them? What is God revealing to us? Well, God is revealing to them and to us that blood cleanses, blood purifies, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That blood is life, 
when it is poured out as death. The blood will either cry out against a man like it did with Cain in judgment and condemnation, or it'll cry out for a man like it did with each and every temple sacrifice, opening up access to God. So this leads us to our, our third angle as we look at this covenant with Moses. This covenant as it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I recently stumbled across a, a, an interesting article. It kind of had a, I guess you would call it a new age feel to it. And the article was describing how to have a, a God encounter. And it had all these recommendations of things like very tranquil, peaceful, silence, transcendental meditation, and had, again, a very new age feel to it. And I thought, well, that's very well. But I wonder, how do you keep this amazing poise and this composure when there's thunder and lightning and trumpets blasting off? And I say that because you may have noticed that though Moses, the mediator, is bringing the people to meet with God, the people are trembling and they are shaking in fear. And for good reason, they are told, you so much as touch this mountain, you are dead. You're toast. They are, after all, coming into the presence of the most holy God. And they are coming as nothing other than sinners. My most beloved seminary professor, he was fond of telling us over and over again that when man meets with God, he does not perk up. He does not get warm fuzzies. He falls down on his face as though dead, quaking in fear, saying, Woe is me, the man of unclean lips. And it's no different here. This is a life-threatening encounter. Though God is coming down, Moses is right when he says, God, you're coming down, but we cannot come up. If we come up, that is a collision of your awesome holiness and our sin, and that's a collision we do not walk away from. And so what's beginning to unravel here is that there is this condemning power to the law. That the law is, as it were, a kind of dealer of death. Now, I hope I made it clear earlier that, that there's absolutely nothing whatever sinful or evil or defective in God's law. It's holy, just, and good. So what are we to make of it? Well, I think we could phrase it this way. The only problem with God's law is not in the law itself, but the recipient of God's law. The only flaw in the law is the one He gave it to. If only God gave it to anybody else other than humans, maybe it would have gone well. But alas, He gave it to us, to sinful man. It's somewhat like if you give food to a healthy person, it's nourishment, it's strength, it's life. But if you give food to somebody who has the stomach flu, well, you might as well just give them a trash bag with it because they will be vomiting shortly. And so too, as our sinful flesh cooperates with the law, our spiritual influenza digests the law only to make our pollution and our guilt and our corruption all the more evident. The law is in this regard like a spiritual mirror held out in front of us as we look into it. And we have that sobering reality. Is this really what I'm like? Am I really this subhuman? Am I really this anti-God? Do I really have all these other gods before Him? Do I really covet this much? Do I really bow down to pride and lust and vanity and the God of money and sex and so forth? Am I really this incapable of speaking the truth in love? Is this what it looks like when I'm confronted with God's most holy will? And so the law 
weakened by our flesh, does not have the power to fulfill its own demands. It reveals to us that our sin, my sin, is not just an occasional slip of the tongue. It's not just an occasional shortcoming, but rather it is my very nature. It is enmeshed into me, heart, mind, and soul. And so you hear Paul's devastating criticism of the Judaizers in the New Testament who intended to use the law as their own prideful ladder up to heaven. That by their own personal obedience, they could truly win God's favor and come up to God. And instead of it leading them towards Christ, instead of the law convincing them of their unrighteousness, preaching to them their inadequacies, stimulating the faith of Abraham, the law leads them only further and further away from Christ. And it's no different for you and I. If we pick this up and say, here is the manual of merit. But in this life-threatening encounter, you may have also noticed, there's a saving grace for Israel. To be found in this shepherd-turned-intercessor named Moses. And friends, that is exactly what we need as well. We must have a mediator. A super-mediator. A new Adam, if you will. And so I want to walk through just a few simple ways that Christ is that super mediator. A few simple ways that He fulfills Sinai in light of what we've looked at. Firstly, Christ our mediator is our law keeper. Recall the very confident response of Israel. They say, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, check, we will do. And covenant blessings are always tied to covenant obedience. But you may well know, I'm sure, the story of Israel is anything but covenant obedience and rather only law breaking and so who comes Christ our mediator comes as one born under the law as Galatians says Jesus shows us what it is to never covet to never murder to have no other gods and positively speaking the law is his very delight he says all that the Lord has spoken I will do and I will do it on behalf of my people but We need more than just that, don't we? We need more than just a law keeper as we just confessed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the glory of Christ is not only is He the law keeper, but He also takes our place as the law breaker. What does every sin deserve but the curse and the wrath of God? And so God made the Christ who knew no sin to be sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ, the law keeper, is accounted, numbered as a lawbreaker. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. It's as that great hymn says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I pray you see now. You see that God, He supplies the very thing that He demands. He fulfills the very thing that He demands. God demands perfect obedience and He has supplied it in Christ. His majesty demands punishment for sin, and He has provided it in Jesus Christ. And it is all by grace. So Christ comes as the law keeper. He takes our place as the law breaker. But thirdly, He is also our law enabler. He enables us, He empowers us to walk in the fear of the Lord and to keep His commandments. I can recall, not too long ago, I began taking up piano. Uh, And if you heard me play, you'd say, how long ago was that? No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
Because my progress at piano was so incredibly slow and dull and monotonous. And so I figured, okay, I'm going to have to have a teacher at some point. So I, I brought in the guy who was playing piano at our church to come in and teach me. And so we would both sit down together at the piano, he right next to me, and I'm sitting next to him. And he begins to play. And he strikes every note with perfection. Every chord with perfection. Perfect timing, perfect melody, perfect harmony. And then when he's done, he turns to me and he says, okay, now you do it. Of course, he has to sit there and he has to watch me fumble around like a buffoon and hit off key and hit off timing and hit off melody. And I just wonder, though he never said it, and I'm sure if you're a teacher, you've had this thought before. I just wonder if he ever thought, if only I could get inside of this student. If only I could get in that clunky brain of his. If only I could get in those fingers and that timing and fix his, his beat and his rhythm, maybe then he could follow the pattern that I have laid down for him. Of course, for him, this is just a pipe dream. Friends, this is precisely what Christ does through his spirit. Moses gave the law, but he, he delivered the law, but what he could not deliver was the power to keep that law and to walk in it. He could not give the newness of heart to find delight in it. He could deliver stone tablets at best, but not so with our mediator. God writes his law onto our very heart through the power of the Spirit and unto what end? As Romans says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you who walk not according to your flesh, but according to the Spirit. God is, after all, conforming you, pressing you, shaping you into the very image of the great law keeper, Jesus Christ. Lastly, why do we need a mediator? But to bring us to God. But to bring us into this great communion with God. Recall, this was a life-threatening encounter with God. The people are standing far off while Moses draws near. Moses approaches God with this unique, unparalleled intimacy. Entering the presence of God. Entering into this thick darkness, if you remember. And this is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Who on that hill of Calvary, the sixth hour, what covers the land but darkness? And Christ, our mediator, enters into the holy place to open up a new and living way, access to our triune God. So that is Christ our mediator, the obedient law keeper, the one who stands in our place as our law breaker, our law enabler by the power of His Spirit, and the one who brings us to God. And friends, this is not a take your pick of your favorite blessing. This is the full Jesus Christ in all His glory who is presented, laid before us, And says, come, believe in me, for my yoke is not burdensome, my yoke is light. Well, let me close this section, and I'll put it this way. Let's take a look finally at the, the, what I would call the tale of two faces. I'm sure you've heard of the tale of two cities. Well, this is a tale of two faces as we look at the face of Moses and the face of Jesus Christ. You may remember a little later on, Moses comes down from the mountain And his face is shining. And he's unaware that his face is shining. His face is glowing. And so let's ask the question, why is the face of Moses shining? Keep in mind, he's been fasting for 40 days. If you saw me and I've been fasting for 40 days, 
You would say many things, but I know I would not be shining. You'd say, that man looks death-like, gaunt, haggard. Why is the face of Moses shining? Well, for the simple reason. Because he had been with God. He had been communing with God. Transformation comes from being in the presence of God. And that glory is now reflecting off of his face. Radiating off of his face. We talk this way, don't we? If you're in the presence of somebody you love, or you see a a mom who's expecting, we tend to say, you are glowing. Look at you, you are just beaming with life. Well, Moses is far beyond that. He is one who speaks with the Almighty God face to face. And so it's a timeless truth, isn't it? We do not mature by looking inward. We do not be mature and become transformed by turning ever in ourselves. We mature by seeking the living Christ, by beholding His glory in word and sacrament. It's worth asking yourself, am I communing with the living God or am I turned inward? Are my affections spiraling around myself or am I set upon the living Christ? And Christian, what good news. Hear this evening that the glory that you participate in is far, far greater, far better hyper-glorious when compared to Israel at Sinai. And that's exactly Paul's point in 2 Corinthians. What once had glory, the Old Covenant, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all in comparison. I could put it this way. The face of Moses shined, but the face of Jesus Christ shines. Moses, temporary, Christ permanent, Moses reflective, Christ radiant, the law preparing us for glory, Christ the summit of glory. God's people must have something much more permanent and unending, and where can they turn but to the living Christ? Who on that mountain, when He is transfigured, He is not reflecting anything. He is radiating with the glory of the only begotten Son. And how could He not but radiate? Here is God's only Son enjoying eternal communion with the living God. We so often talk of God's love for us, and well we should, but we must start here with that great eternal love that the Father has for His Son because it is that love and no other love that we are brought into by way of covenant. And so what does this transition from old to new mean? I know for us as as parents, and maybe you've done the same, we have a legal will set in place so that we can transition all of our assets to our children when they're old and they're mature enough to handle it. In a sense, our children have a claim to all that we own, but guess what? They don't enjoy any of it and have any access to it while they are still children. Well, at this point in time, under Moses, God's people are but children. They're under tutelage. They're under old covenant management. But Christian, guess what? You are not. If you are in Christ, you enjoy the glory of the new covenant, of the indwelling spirit of the risen Christ, of a glorious, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. You echo the refrain of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, crying out, Abba, Father, and you do so because you are no longer under management. And the veil has been removed to behold the glory of Christ. And so that's why Paul can say, you are not like Moses. You are very bold. So ask yourself, am I that bold? Am I bolder than Moses? 
Am I bolder than a man who could stand before a mighty Pharaoh? Am I bolder than a man who led the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness wandering? And perhaps truth be told, you say, I don't feel all that bold. But Christian, guess what? The word of God says you are. That you have a power to walk in covenantal faithfulness and obedience. Free from the condemning power of the law. A boldness to endure in the faith because of the God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations. Or how about this? How can we make the seemingly arrogant claim that we are the church? That we are the very living temple of God. The body of Christ. Members one of another. A city set on a hill. We can answer because God has brought us into covenant fellowship through our mediator, Jesus Christ. And above all, you have a boldness to with an unveiled face behold the glory of Christ and to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Because we become like what we worship. And through Christ, God has taken the veil off of our eyes so that we can behold Him and so be like Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are the God who has come down. That You have given us the very covenant who is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As one born under the law, as one who stood in our place, pierced for our iniquities, broken in our place, as the one through whom You have given us Your very Spirit, that we may walk not according to the flesh, but according to Your Spirit. Indeed, that He is the very one who is bringing us to glory, into Your very presence, to commune with You forever and ever, that You might be all in all and glorified as Lord God Most High. And so we pray that You would make this word effectual, that You would seal it up into our hearts, that we might practice it in our lives. And we ask all these things through the name of our one and our only mediator, Jesus Christ. And Amen.